Let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis 45. Genesis 45. There is a, an, a handout with the outline on it on the back table. If you missed that, feel free to, to get up and get one. Genesis 45. We've been in Genesis a long time. We are just, depending on how you count, five or six chapters away from the end. And we are in the the saga, really, of Jacob and his sons, especially Joseph and Judah as well, is also standing out now. Joseph has been putting his brothers through a series of tests, severe tests at that. They don't yet know that it's Joseph standing in front of them as the governor, the prime minister, you might say, of Egypt, one of the most powerful men in the world at the time. Joseph's brothers had come from Canaan to Egypt to buy food for their families during famine. Egypt was the one place that had food to spare. That, of course, was because God had sent Joseph to interpret Pharaoh's dreams to warn him uh, of this coming famine. But now Joseph's brothers are in front of him, not recognizing him. Joseph's put them through a series of tests to find out what kind of men they are and how he should interact with them going forward. Twenty-some years ago, ten of Joseph's brothers, all of his half-brothers, not counting Benjamin, his full brother, these ten brothers had, first of all, plotted to kill Joseph. Then they'd thrown him into a pit to let him die on his own, Reuben secretly hoping to get him out of the pit later. And then, at Judah's suggestion, they had sold him into slavery instead, so they could actually profit from the whole situation. So now Joseph has tested them. He sees that they have changed since those horrible days long ago. He also knows from hearing their conversation when they didn't know he understood them, he knows that their guilt weighs heavy on their souls. And just now, chapter 44, Judah had stepped forward offering his life in exchange for Benjamin, who, who looked guilty, though actually it was Joseph who had framed Benjamin with his silver cup. Judah had offered his life in exchange for Benjamin's life as a slave. That, this is the Judah who had suggested that his brothers sell Joseph all those years back. God has brought about much change in this family, they are much more united than they used to be, and they are much uh, humbler men, and they have much tenderer hearts. But all this time, there's one thing they haven't they haven't faced, and that's their guilt toward Joseph, and toward their father, and how they treated Joseph, and lied to their father that Joseph was dead. But now, at the end of all these tests, Joseph realizes it's time. I... I I'm ready to reveal my identity to my brothers. Again, this is right after they think that Benjamin is guilty of stealing this governor's silver cup. Uh, Judah has offered himself as a slave, begged to be a slave in his brother's place, because if they don't bring their brother Benjamin back to their father, their father loves Benjamin so much he will die if they don't return Benjamin to him. So now we come to chapter 45. And the big idea as we go forward in this text is, as you see in your notes there, 
Joseph was revealed to his own as a gracious savior rather than a vengeful judge. So I'm calling this sermon Joseph's Revelation. Joseph was revealed to his own as a gracious savior rather than a vengeful judge. Let's read, first of all, verses 1 through 15 of the chapter. Genesis 45, verses 1 through 15. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see... And the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. Pause there. So verses 1 through 15, as we look at the flow of the text here, before uh, applying the themes further, verses 1 through 15, Joseph's identity is revealed to his brothers. Finally, we've been waiting for this a long time in the text, and it finally happens. And Joseph is, is not stoic about this at all. He is full of emotion. He weeps so loudly that those next door in the next section of the palace complex, it seems, heard it. Pharaoh's household heard it. Even though he'd commanded everyone, all of his attendants, to leave him alone with these 11 men from Canaan. And in that context, tears streaming, he says, I am Joseph. Remember, from earlier, it indicates he had always talked to them through an interpreter, as if he couldn't understand their tribal language, which we would call Hebrew. But suddenly, 
the interpreter's not even in the room, and he talks to them in their native tongue. I am Joseph. Imagine the shock that ripped through them. And they look at the face. It's, it's 22 or so years older than when he was 17. It's him. Probably beneath all the, you know, the Egyptian eye paint and whatever's going on uh, as he's decked out as the Egyptian governor, it's Joseph. It's Joseph. Judah, last chapter, had just said to Joseph directly, um, one of our brothers is dead. <laughs> he said that to Joseph. Nope. He's right there. Is my father still alive? That may be more of a, maybe less of an actual question, but just expressing again his concern for his father, as Judah had just been telling him that his father might die if Benjamin didn't come back. But look at verse 5. We're going to return to all this in application and, and look at it some more then, but I do want to point some things out as we just walk through the text, first of all. Verse 5 He points them as he wants them not to be angry with themselves. He points them to the to God instead of themselves. He says, God sent me before you to preserve life. He uses same basic wording for preserving life here as was used earlier in Genesis where Noah was preserving life, bringing the animals on board the ark. He was... Um, Life was preserved inside the ark, which later, of course, we know in Scripture is a picture of Christ, salvation in Christ. <clears throat> now, Joseph is saying something similar. This time, it's not a flood, it's a famine. And this time, he's the Savior. God sent me before you into Egypt to preserve life. Because if I weren't here in this position now, you and your families would have no hope of survival. And in verse 6, Joseph disclosed that God has revealed the future to him. He knows exactly how long this famine is going to last. There's still five years to go, guys. I know you didn't know that yet, but that's true. Until now, his family did not know to expect seven total years of famine. But as God's chosen Savior, Joseph has God's word on the topic. Remember, that was he learned that through interpreting Pharaoh's dreams for him. And verse 7, here's the connection to probably the biggest, one of the biggest themes in Genesis. The promise of the seed, the offspring that flows throughout Genesis. The seed of the woman, that promise then becoming the promise of seed to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. All God's redemptive promises for the world, in fact, are bound up in the promise of offspring to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And for that offspring to survive, this had to happen. All of this. And so we see that thread that is run throughout Genesis uh, come out here as well. Verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. Now sometimes in our um, overly literal minds, we might choke on statements like this in the Bible. It was not you who sent me here, 
but God. Well, of course, Joseph's brothers had sent him to Egypt, hadn't they? Yes, but that was not the ultimate and highest reality which had determined the event. That's Joseph's point. God's unchanging purpose and almighty hand had determined that Joseph go to Egypt in just such a fashion. As Joseph will say to his brothers in a later chapter, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Not God made the best of a bad situation and turned it into good. No, God meant it for good. God did it from the perspective of his providence and his eternal plan. So in the end analysis, it was God who had sent Joseph to Egypt. Far above all the human drama sat God on his throne. So it was not you, but God. He's not denying their human responsibility, but he's pointing to the greater reality to see here. This sort of, not this, but this, not you, but God, um, we see that sort of contrast worded that way other places where we might also misunderstand it if we don't get the emphasis. For instance, John fifteen sixteen, Jesus says to his disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Well, certainly everyone who follows Christ chose to do so at some point. That is, the human will was engaged, but that only happened because of Christ's prior choice of certain people to be his disciples. The human characters do what they do because the Lord Jesus wrote the story that way. Or Hosea 6, 6, a little different context. God says to Israel, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Well, it was God himself who had commanded sacrifices and burnt offerings in public worship, right? So how could he say he, that he didn't desire them? Well, again, he's pointing to the more important thing, the more important fact. He's saying that what he really desires is not merely that kind of ritual. He wants worship from those who know and love him. He's not after external worship for its own sake. Steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So back to our text. It was not you who sent me here, but God. Again, we're going to come back to all this in the application. But Joseph also says, God has made me a father to Pharaoh. That seems to have been a recognized title of people of his position in the day. Viziers, high officials. Um... It probably has the idea of a king's advisor. I have, I have Pharaoh's own ear. <laughs> uh, father to Pharaoh. But I like what Derek Kidner says here, and I like it so much I just included it in your notes so you can see it, not just hear it. He says, in this passage, strong feeling and sound spiritual argument complete the work of reconciliation which had called for surgical severity throughout the early stages. It had been a task for the whole man, patiently sustained by conviction and not mere impulse. So he's, he's speaking to Joseph's example here 
um, and, and what he was doing well in a godly way. Um, there was surgical severity as Joseph had to figure out what his brothers were like now. But Joseph was doing all he was doing, not on the impulse of the moment, but because of conviction. And at this point, when he's ready to reveal himself to his brothers, there's strong feeling and there's sound spiritual argument. How else can he make sense of this for himself and his brothers? How else can he face this situation if he doesn't have God foremost in his view? Sound spiritual argument. Verse 10, he says that he will provide a place for them to live in Goshen, which was probably northeast Egypt. You know how the Nile River, unlike a lot of rivers, flows south to north through Africa, up through Egypt into the Mediterranean Sea. Up there, before it goes into the Mediterranean Sea, it, it, it spreads out into many branches. It's the Nile Delta, we call it. And it's probably somewhere on the east part of that Nile Delta that Goshen was. So it would have provided rich, green pasture land for those who had a lot of animals, like Joseph's family. Goshen. Uh, as Meredith Klein says, it was near enough to the royal court for Joseph to exercise direct supervision. Uh, as Joseph says here, you'll be near to me. Yet being cattle country, it afforded a measure of isolation from the mainstream of Egyptian influences. Intermarriage with Egyptians would be minimized, and of course, in Egypt, the problem of intermarriage with Canaanites that had troubled the patriarchal family was left behind. In other words, <clears throat> this is God's providence, clearly. Israel is going to be preserved as a people for 400 years in Egypt. Um, because they are shepherds, they're herdsmen, and a number of cultural factors, they'll be their own group. They won't just blend into the Egyptians. And this will be the perfect spot for them to survive and to survive as a distinct group, as the promised offspring that God is preserving. But notice how verse 15 ends this section. He kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. First glance sounds like a mundane thing to say, right? After that, his brothers talked with him. Okay, anticlimactic. <laughs> but I think this is an intentional contrast. Others think this too. Um, back in chapter 37, verse 4, back when this whole story of Joseph had begun, his brothers hated him so much they couldn't speak peaceably to him. Couldn't even speak civilly with him. Now it's come full circle. They can talk again. That's the point. They can actually speak to each other. And so, it's very intentional why it says what it says here. This one they used to hate so much they couldn't speak to him. Now, I'm sure they're all amazed at themselves. We're on speaking terms with him. And he hasn't killed us. <laughs> he could have immediately just had us killed. And all Egypt would have approved. This is the man who saved our country and you guys sold him into slavery? Now let's go to verses 16 through 24 and not get stuck in the weeds too much. Um, 
I'm going to keep moving here. Verses 16 through 24. Joseph's brothers are revealed to Pharaoh. And part of what this is about is Joseph needs official, um, the official stamp of approval from Pharaoh for the whole plan of having the family move to Egypt. So that's what this is about. Verse 16. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan. And take your father and your households and come to me. And I will give you the best of the land of Egypt. And you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives. And bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods. For the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh. Call them U-Hauls. That's not inspired. That was me. Um, Gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh, and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes. But to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. (laughs) Actually, verse 24, there's disagreement how to translate that. Is it... It's a word that can mean trembling, being agitated. Is it, um, have no fear on your journey. Uh, fear of Joseph or anything. But um, most translated, do not quarrel on the way. His brothers had changed, and yet this could still happen. <laughs> they might even get into it as now... They have to go back home and tell their father what they haven't told him all these years, what they've lied to him about all these years. That might produce quarrels too. But apparently, they heed his his warning. Well, <clears throat> we see that Joseph is already the savior of Egypt. And because of that, Pharaoh bestows great honor on the family for Joseph's sake. Again, um, familiar dynamic in a much greater way. God treats us with the same honor he treats his own son if we belong to Jesus. But the, the, the honor, the glory was Joseph's. His family just participated simply because they were his family. Interesting in verse 22, the story of Joseph began uh, largely... Besides the dreams of Joseph, it began with jealousy of Joseph, especially because he got this stately robe, coat of many colors, as some translate it. Now Joseph gives them clothing. (laughs) The story had started with hostility over clothing. Now reconciliation is symbolized by gifts of clothing. Interesting. Interesting. Of course, Benjamin got far more than the others. Benjamin was Joseph's full brother, his only full brother from the same mother. But also, it may be that this is partly because Joseph had just put Benjamin through a lot. 
Benjamin was innocent this whole time, and Joseph framed his brother Benjamin and um, probably scared him to death. He thought he, he was either dead or a slave in Egypt because of something he didn't do. Now, uh, perhaps Joseph is also compensating him a bit, um, showing his affection for him, even though he, uh, to test his other brothers, he had, he had put Benjamin through a lot. Also, ten male donkeys are sent with the finest products of Egypt, <clears throat> the best Egypt had to offer, and that'll help convince Jacob back home that this isn't a made-up story. Joseph is really there, and he's really Lord of Egypt. In a famine, he can send the best things of Egypt to Jacob. But now we get to verses 25 through 28 to finish up the chapter. Joseph's glory revealed to Jacob. Joseph had told his brothers, tell my father about all my honor in Egypt. Help him understand. This is going to be quite the shift in thinking that I, uh, from thinking that I'm dead to this. Joseph's glory revealed to Jacob. Verse 25. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough, <clears throat> or, okay, enough, I believe you now. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. As you might expect, Jacob is so shocked, it's like his heart can't feel anything. His inner man can't, uh, everything, it's almost like the light's dim, uh, everything fades and all the noise fades into background noise. He's just, what? <laughs> and he doesn't believe them at first. He just can't make that mental switch. He's been mourning his son Joseph for 20 years. And he's alive, and he's in charge of the greatest country on earth, and the only country on earth that has food. But slowly the pieces come together, and he starts to make sense of it all finally. And says, okay, Joseph is still alive. I get to go and see him before I die. We'll focus more on Jacob in the next chapter of Genesis. <clears throat> there we'll see God appear to him and reassure him as he goes down to Egypt. But for now, let's just focus on this chapter. As Joseph was revealed to his own as a gracious savior rather than a vengeful judge. Two big themes of the text, as you see there in your notes. First theme, which is huge, is this. Hidden guilt and free forgiveness. Hidden guilt and free forgiveness. Joseph's ten brothers who had hated and abused him some 20 years ago. They'd been hiding their guilt ever since Joseph was trafficked into Egypt. And they'd stuffed that guilt deep inside their souls. 
And there was this haunting dread that God's vengeance was chasing them down ever since. We've seen that already as we've gone chapter by chapter through this story. Hidden guilt. At the same time, God's grace had already begun to make, uh, to make them different men from the quarreling, vicious men they used to be. The violent brutes they had been. And Judah, of course, was the, the prime example of that transformation. But there was still one thing that they'd never dared tell their own father. They'd probably never told their wives, their children. Only those those who were there that day knew about it, it seems. And now, after all the ups and downs, the unpredictable interactions with this Egyptian governor, this mysterious man shouts a command for all his staff to leave the room. Even the interpreter leaves. And this man who holds the life of nations in his hand, he starts speaking to them in their own language. He says, I am Joseph. And what happens in that moment? Their private hidden guilt is suddenly public on the stage of world affairs. There's no hiding it anymore. But just when they think their lives are over, because of that, because it's out in the open now, and the one they wronged is in charge of the world just about, This Joseph, who had every reason in the world to vent 20 years of pent-up fury. The brothers, the brother that they had sold, tells them not to be angry with themselves. No hint of sarcasm. Don't be angry with yourselves. Joseph, how can you not be angry with us? Don't be angry with ourselves. But that's what Joseph says. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Next thing they know, Joseph is telling them that his job is now not just to provide them with food, but to give them and their entire extended family the best land in Egypt. They're still trying to figure out why he hasn't cut off their heads yet. And more than that, he's providing Pharaoh's own moving trucks, along with 10 loads of food and 10 loads of the best things that the best gifts Egypt had to offer. And he gives them stately clothes. That's what these changes of clothes were probably about. Uh, these, he didn't give them uh, overalls, okay? <laughs> he didn't give them work clothes. He was giving them stately changes of clothes, the sort of thing in which they could stand proud in Egypt's royal court. Benjamin gets more, again, maybe partly because of the trauma Joseph had put him through that day. (laughs) And, of course, Benjamin had nothing to do with what his brothers had done to Joseph, and he was Joseph's one brother from the same mother. But they all get world-class outfits. These are the men who had ripped off Joseph's own stately robe and smeared it with blood to fake his death. So hidden guilt meets free forgiveness. We've seen hints of this before in Genesis, haven't we? Hidden guilt and free forgiveness. In Eden, the first man and woman hid among the trees of the garden. They were terrified in their guilt before God. They had sided with that lying serpent and his rebellion against their good creator. 
but it was useless to hide from the one who'd made them. God exposed their sin and pronounced their curse. But what else did he do? Remember? God had declared that he would give the woman a seed, an offspring, who would crush that lying serpent's head. God would provide undeserved deliverance from their sin and their guilt and their punishment. And Adam and Eve responded to God's promise with humble faith. They had to come out of hiding first. Later we see the negative example of their firstborn, Cain. Cain did not humble himself before God, even when his blood guilt was exposed. Cain murdered his brother Abel, but he never received God's forgiveness. He didn't want God's forgiveness. He wanted God to bless his efforts while leaving his heart alone. And free forgiveness is impossible without humble grief over sin. But Joseph's brothers here in in these chapters of Genesis are wonderfully different from Cain. Judah had spoken for all of them. He had said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. And then Judah had pleaded to be condemned and enslaved in the place of his brother Benjamin. So it was in that context of humble grief that Joseph could freely give them mercy, forgiveness, and he could give them the kind of affection they'd never known. Joseph didn't just load them down with gifts. He grabbed them. He kissed them. He wept on their shoulders. Joseph's ten half-brothers had never known that kind of warm affection, even from their own father, even from each other. This was a broken family. This was no mere show of reconciliation. This was full reconciliation after horrible estrangement, deep pain. Reconciliation that drew the brothers closer than they'd ever been. So hidden guilt exposed and owned can be met by God's free forgiveness. Full forgiveness that leads to a full reconciliation. So God and those who reflect God's heart delight to overwhelm guilty sinners with free grace. That's right at the heart of what it means to be like our God. Free grace. And this is so important to God the Father and to his son Jesus Christ that he will not tolerate our hard hearts toward each other. Remember the Lord's Prayer? Matthew 6, 9-15 Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For, Jesus says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Well, have you been forgiven by God? Have you been forgiven by God? Even though he had to expose your guilt first, If you haven't experienced this, your guilt is unforgiven and your conscience condemns you 
You suppress the truth about God and your sin if you're in that condition. And different people do it different ways. If they're not, if they haven't experienced forgiveness from God, um, maybe you're the externally righteous type and you hide your sin that way. You put on a good show. Or maybe you're the type that just blatantly ignores God's commands. That's how you ignore your guilt. You just refuse to, to admit that God has the right to judge you in the first place. <clears throat> or maybe you're a mix of outward respectability and thinly veiled rebellion. But wherever you are, you desperately need God's forgiveness and grace. You have no clue what you're missing. A clean conscience, at peace with God. A smiling creator who's now your father. The warm embrace of the one who died in your place. If you believe in him. God's affection for you is commitment to you that will far surpass anything you've ever experienced. Anything you've ever known or craved from a parent, a family member, a friend. So if you have hidden guilt... Toward God, take it to God, confess it all. Not that you could ever think of all the ways you've offended God, but the point is confess yourself a sinner, that you agree with God about your status, where you are, how bad off you are. Take your guilt to God, confess it all, and exchange it for his free forgiveness in Jesus. You have to do that. Without coming with excuses. Don't come with any excuses. Don't come with any demands on God. Just come pleading Jesus' death for sinners. And his resurrection to give them eternal life. That's it. The crucified and risen Jesus. Tell the Lord. You said that whoever comes to you through Jesus. You'll never cast out. I'm coming. That's all. That's all. John 1, verse 12 through 14. But to all who did receive him, and it's speaking here of Christ, the word of God, God's light who came into this dark world, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Not just forgiven, children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. When you meet Jesus, you'll find him full of grace and truth that you can depend upon. The same apostle who penned those words also penned 1 John. Here's how he opens up 1 John to those who have believed in Jesus. 1 John 1, verses 1 through 9. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, 
that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, while we're still hiding our guilt, still in our guilt, in our sins, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God's free forgiveness always leads to fellowship. The, the working out of the fact that we really are reconciled to God. Before leaving this theme, hidden guilt and free forgiveness, we should turn it around. Do we forgive like Joseph? Do we forgive like Jesus, whom Joseph foreshadows? I'm not asking now if we forgive. I'm asking how we forgive. Are we reluctant or eager to forgive? Now, Joseph had reasons for testing his brother's character before figuring out how this should go. But also, he didn't wait for them to even voice their guilt toward him. Joseph had overheard them voice their guilt in private conversation with each other. But when the day of reckoning came, Joseph didn't just reveal his identity and then wait for them to ask for his forgiveness. He didn't leave the ball in their court. When the stage was properly set, he eagerly initiated reconciliation. They didn't even get the chance to formally confess their sin. You notice that? They didn't know what to say. Joseph was already right there with them, assuring them that he did not harbor resentment against them. He went out of his way to calm their fears. He pointed them to God's hand in, the, in their story. And he gave them tangible assurances of his love and care for them. Is that how we eagerly forgive? Or do we find ourselves reluctant and stingy with our affection toward those who have wronged us? Is that how God the Father forgives his children? Remember that's the parable Jesus told of what we call the prodigal son, picturing the sinner who has sinned against God the Father. Remember Luke 15, verse 17, when that son who had wasted all his father's, um, all the father had given him as his inheritance early, he'd wasted everything, spent it all. It says, when he came to himself, the son said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He has this whole speech planned out. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, he starts a speech, Father, 
I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. That's how God treats us. God is very ready to forgive. Well, there's a second theme here that I need to address before we, before we end. And it's a glorious theme. Man's intention and God's providence. When we look at the events of history, the events of our life stories, we see man's intention, what man intends by what he does. Often that's an evil intent. And God's providence, how God orders and directs absolutely everything that happens for his good purposes. Man's intention and God's providence. Again, as Joseph said in Genesis 45, 5, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. So because of what God is doing in all this, don't be distressed or angry with yourselves. If we are repentant and forgiven in Christ, we can tell our consciences to be quiet about our past sins. No matter how evil they were. One of many reasons for that is that we can now get our eyes off ourselves to see God in it all. We can see God's good hand was at work even in our own sordid past. Even when man, even what man does in his evil is part of God's good plan. That's the greatness and goodness of our almighty God. He orders all things, all of history, according to his eternal purpose, the scripture says. The fact of God's eternal decree, as we call it, and his good providence, it also helps us, like Joseph, not look at everything through dark lenses, through the lenses of human injustice. Because we could look at everything that way, couldn't we? Our view of everything in life could be very dark because we're just looking at creaturely evil that's everywhere. Human injustice, even. Human evil is everywhere, and it will drive you to cynical despair if that's all you can see. But, if you see the more important reality, that truth that God does all he pleases, unhampered by his creatures, then you can redirect your gaze from this dark world to heaven. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, Psalm 103 says, and his kingdom rules over all. God's sovereignty is not a doctrine to inflate your intellect, to inflate your sense of superiority over those who don't get it yet. It's a doctrine to humble you to the dust, And it's a doctrine to sustain you so that you can suffer well and you can forgive well. That's what it's for. We all, I think, have used good doctrine in very wrong ways before. As if it's something for us to be proud of. Oh, we get it. 
God's sovereignty will help you suffer well in this life and it'll help you forgive well. Turn to the book of Acts with me. The book of Acts, chapter 2. Starting in verse 22. This doctrine of God's sovereignty is how the apostles could offer God's forgiveness to the nation, the people that, like Joseph's brothers, had hated and betrayed their Savior. Or let me put it a different way. Peter and the the rest of the twelve, Jesus was their master. He was their friend. He was their personal Lord. And then they had to turn around and say to the very people who had crucified their master. You can have God's free forgiveness. Acts 2 verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. This is Peter speaking on the day of Pentecost to the Jews. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was not you, but God. Hear that. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now go down to verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Go to the next chapter, Acts chapter 3, verse 13. Again, Peter speaking to a group of Jews, this time in the temple. He had healed a lame man, or Jesus had healed a lame man through Peter and John. And Peter says, Acts 3.13, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Now verse 17. And now, brothers, I know you that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. It was not you, but God. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Then Acts chapter 4, the church is threatened by their nation's rulers never to speak in Jesus' name again. And as part of their prayer to the Lord, they say, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. It was not them, but God. Lastly, Acts chapter 7. 
Stephen. Stephen, though confronting his enemies with their murder of God's righteous son, Stephen pled for God to forgive them as they were stoning him to death, throwing rocks at him. How could he do that? He saw the one on the throne and the one ruling from his right hand. Acts 7, starting in verse 51, Stephen says to the Jewish rulers, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And Stephen had especially just mentioned Joseph and Moses as examples of that. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Do not let man's intention blind you to God's providence. To his sovereign control of all things, his sovereign hand in all things. Joseph understood that. That's how he could reveal himself to his guilty brothers in grace rather than in vengeance. What about you? Are you so honed in on what people are doing wrong? You can't see the glory of God. What God's doing. You can't have trust in a sovereign God enough to say, I trust you that I can forgive. I can be reconciled to sinners. Or again, maybe you haven't received forgiveness yourself from God. Isn't it time? Let's bow together. Thank you, Father, for these words of Scripture that are your own words to us. Help us to deal with hidden guilt and receive free forgiveness, both with heaven and with men. And, Father, help us to do that which is not natural for us, apart from your grace. Help us to see not only human intention, but your own providence and sovereignty and how you work all things together for the good of those who love you who are called according to your purpose and you work all things together to the praise of your own glory may that be what captures our attention more than the human drama around us and may we then see at least begin to see your hand even in the human drama so that we can properly praise you and point others to you 
in the midst of much confusion and darkness in this world. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.